All right, we're live. Another episode of Monero Talk. We uh, we took a, a little break there for uh, for a week or two. Uh, last show was with J.W. Weatherman. Um, I don't know, uh, Andrew, if you're familiar with him. Uh, I've met him, yeah. But uh, yeah, so we we've we've kind of now moved back into uh, what I like to call. Uh, I like to kind of trying to be the kind of the PBS of, of, of crypto here. So I'm hoping uh, now that we have uh, a guest like you on, we're, we're moving back towards that as opposed to the more uh, Fox News-esque show that we had last week. Um, but yeah, this is Andrew uh, Polstra. Is that the correct pronunciation? Yep. Um, I, I really don't know. What's the best way to describe your background? Hmm. Or intro. What's how? How would you uh, introduce yourself in the? Uh, you know, what's what's your resume? I mean, I, I know you've you've done quite a bit. So, how would you? Uh... I showed up in the Bitcoin scene in maybe 2011. Um, somebody posted something on Slashdot about it. Uh, something I forget what it was now, but it was very obviously wrong. Um, and so I followed their links to go to their, their forums, to Bitcoin Talk, to tell these people why they were wrong. This thing was never going to work. And I got kind of nerd sniped and, uh, and wound up studying Bitcoin more or less full time for a couple of years. I had kind of a nice opportunity uh, at this time in my life because I just started a PhD program. Um, and uh, for those who, who have done a PhD, you might know for the first year or two, you can kind of get away with doing nothing at all. Um, you can just spend all your time at home doing your own research, just sort of uh, showing up every so often for status updates. And especially if you are doing something kind of academic or academic adjacent, you can get away with doing that for quite a while. So for a couple of years, I was basically just studying cryptography, reading things off the ePrint archive, um, following the Bitcoin mailing list, looking up whatever was interesting. At the time, it was is what... Um, we now consider like really like basic stuff. Uh, like snarks hadn't been invented. We were talking about just the ability to use Schnorr signatures. We didn't really know about the different Schnorr multi-signatures that are out there, the kind of stuff that we care about now when we talk about Schnorr signatures were not even a thing. We just thought it was a slightly more efficient signature scheme. Um, and that in itself was exciting. So I did that for a couple of years. Um, and then uh, eventually my uh, not going to school caught up with me. And I, uh, the school and I parted ways and, uh, and I joined Blockstream. So this, this is when Blockstream started actually in early 2014. I'd been working with them uh, as a contractor, helping them uh, flesh out their idea for the side chains project that we were working on, writing a white paper for that and so on. Um, and it seemed like uh, a natural transition for me to stop pretending to be a grad student and to maybe just actually do this Bitcoin stuff full time. So I asked them, you know, will you give me a visa so I can continue living in sunny Austin, Texas, and not have to go back to the snow of uh, Vancouver where I grew up? And they said, oh, sure, sure. So, so now I'm here. And that's, All right. uh, that's my story. Well, good for us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so you never finished the PhD? No, no. I, uh, actually, I dropped out of two PhDs. Um, so as part of... Um, my attempt to marry up my schoolwork with my um, crypto work, I switched from the math department. I was doing a math PhD. I tried to do a computing science PhD because uh, I thought that would be more crypto focused. But at the University of Texas, where I was, there wasn't any 
there, there was nobody working there who was doing the kind of work that was relevant to Bitcoin at the time. And actually, back then, there wasn't really anybody doing that kind of work in academia. That's um, very different than it is today. Um, so I, I dropped out of the computer science PhD and went back to math, and then I dropped out of that one, and, uh, and now I'm here. So, but they gave me they gave me a uh, like a constellation masters, I guess, because I, I put in some time. I'd done a lot of coursework. Um, I produced a bunch of stuff. I had a few published papers and they said, oh, that's a master's, even though I wasn't really trying to do that. Yeah, I think you definitely qualify for uh, an honorary PhD. Of, um, <laughs> so what what projects have you, uh, what papers have you been a part of and projects have you been a part of in, in the cryptosphere? Hmm. So um, sort of a, a continual, there's a couple of continual research projects of mine for the last several years. Um, one is Schnorr signatures and signature tricks. And that's something that I can talk about um, in a bit more detail. Um, the other is zero knowledge proof. And that's something that uh, for a long time, it seemed that I wouldn't be able to. Um, I just want to say we're, we're hearing, I'm hearing a buzz. I don't know if it's your phone that's vibrating yeah, when it, uh, okay. my phone. let me try to turn off signal notification. I'm not sure why I'm getting 20 messages right now. Okay. Um, cool i'll figure out later how to turn those back on um so zero knowledge proofs have been something that i've been interested in for for quite a while um in 20 late 2013 there was a paper published called snarks for c which was this way to efficiently compile c code uh into a zero knowledge proof circuit um so you could write some sort of arbitrary program you run it through this what was called a tiny ram compiler that was part of the research project um and the result would be a zero knowledge proof where you could run your program or you could prove um correct execution of your program in zero knowledge and we had uh at the time this paper came out on irc we had all these grand ideas of doing like a fully general blockchain where everything was in zero knowledge and the closest thing we've gotten to realizing that vision is zcash i think um and as we know now, there's still like some pretty big limitations there, both in efficiency and security properties. Um, and even the amount of stuff you can make zero knowledge and the interactions between that and things like reorg protection, this all turned out to be much more complicated than, uh, than any of us expected and a much more uh, long-term project than I think we expected when this paper first came out and we all got excited. But one thing in that direction I have been uh, kind of accidentally working on well, let me do on, do on a brief diversion to talk about confidential transactions and confidential assets. I think that was the first thing that I was part of that really uh, we got from like a, a vague idea to something that was actually deployed in real life. So what confidential transactions are is a way to um, hide the amounts in Bitcoin transactions or Bitcoin-like transactions, maybe on another blockchain, such that anybody can verify that the input amounts, the total input amount is equal to the total output amount. That is the transaction balances. And they can't tell anything else. So it's zero knowledge in everything except for the sum being zero, the, the inputs minus outputs being zero. And since that's the only thing that verifiers need to know when they're checking the blockchain, this gives you a pretty strong privacy property, um, but a very efficient one. Um, it didn't require any asymptotic um, efficiency losses. Um, it still 
linear time to verify and the number of inputs and outputs that you're checking. Um, there aren't any like ever growing accumulators. So one issue that we have with Zcash and also with Monero um, is that you have this uh, giant Merkle tree of all of the outputs that have ever existed. Um, and you verifiers can't ever prune this. Okay, it's just this ever-growing list of spent outputs. And in Monero, what this looks like is this list of key images that have been used because verifiers need to check that a key image hasn't been reused. Um, and when you're spending an output, uh, you need to check that that output uh, exists, that it was created at some point. But because you don't know when it's spent, you can't ever remove it from your list of, of outputs. So sort of this ever-growing thing. Confidential transactions doesn't have this. Uh, we retain the uh, kind of Bitcoin-like privacy model uh, it's kind of an oxymoron where um, every transaction unambiguously spends some specific output and you can point to that output on the blockchain and you can build this whole transaction graph of where all the money's flowing. But the difference now is that you can't tell how much money is going anywhere. You can't tell what's a change output. You can't tell what's some massive transaction and what's some something fairly minor or just cons consolidation or whatever. So you actually get pretty significant privacy with reasonable cost costs that were low enough that we felt that uh, this is something we could deploy at least on like a federated or, or a private blockchain with uh, limited membership where we could require people have some extra hardware to use it. So an extension mm -hmm. of that, um, which I uh, contributed to was something called confidential assets. And this is a scheme basically like confidential transactions, but now you can have multiple assets on the same blockchain. And in addition to hiding the amounts, you're now hiding also the asset type. Um, meaning that if you have some sort of transaction that's got, say, like a pegged Bitcoin, maybe you're on a side chain or something, you've got a pegged Bitcoin and a pegged Monero coin, and you want to exchange these trustlessly, you want to create a transaction where like, I put some Bitcoin in, you put some Monero in, and then they come out in each other's hands then we can do that in a way that nobody can tell what is going into the transaction. They can't tell how much was traded. They can't even tell it was a trade if we do it correctly. They can't tell that there was Bitcoin involved. They can't tell there was Monero involved and they can't tell in what amount. Is this, um, just to interrupt for a sec, is this uh, partially blind atomic swaps? Is that? Ah, no. So that's, that's okay. Just, cool. that's, yeah, okay. I'll try, I'll try to, to get to that. I'll keep an eye on the clock because that's really what, what I want to talk about. Um, but, uh, but this sort of, is uh is a basis for most everything else is sort of this neat interaction between confidential transactions confidential assets and later um i'm going to mention scriptless scripts and uh and bulletproofs and peterson commitments and, and all of these cool things that sort of came together kind of accidentally so at the time that we developed confidential transactions and confidential assets it seemed fairly um like a specific use case. We wanted to hide the amounts in transactions. We didn't want to create ever any ever-growing accumulators, but it seemed like we were kind of limited to doing that. There was no way we were going to get from confidential transactions to something like Monero, where you can't tell exactly which output's being spent, um, let alone something like Zcash, where it's like you're doing like a ring signature over every output that ever existed kind of thing. Um, confidential transactions couldn't do that. It was like really we were exploiting this um, cryptographic object called the Peterson commitment that allowed someone to efficiently add and efficiently compare with zero. 
And like, that's all I could do. And if you have those powers, you can prove that inputs equals outputs. You can take your inputs minus your outputs, um, check that they're equal to zero. And that's it, you can't go any further. And so in, I guess, probably the spring of 2017, if I'm remembering my dates right, um, a few of us, it was myself and Greg Maxwell, Peter Woola, went to uh, visit our friends at Stanford, Dan Bonet and, and Ben Boons and um, Ben Fish and, and all those guys. And we were talking about confidential transactions. We said, we've got this thing called confidential transactions, confidential assets. Um, they're, uh, they're very inefficient. I know I just talked up how efficient they were. The thing is they were very slow. It was only a constant factor, um, but it was a pretty bad constant factor. It would take, depending on the size of your transaction, ver verifying it was going to take like 20 to 40 times as much computational power as it would be to verify an ordinary Bitcoin transaction. Um, and it's a constant 20 to 40 times, which is cool. It's not going to get worse as the system progresses, but we are not happy with this. And we also were not happy with the size of the transaction. It meant that every single output was going to have this extra two and a half kilobytes hanging off of it. So if you're doing like, even like the simplest transaction typically has two outputs, right? You've got your destination, what you're actually doing, and then you've got a change output. There's an extra five kilobytes of stuff hanging off of a transaction that would otherwise be 200 bytes, right? Like it's a huge explosion. Um, and we spent a while working on this internally um, at Blockstream, myself and Greg and Adam Back and, and um, a bunch of us had some cool ideas for like trying to shave off a few bytes here and there. But we suggested this to Dan and his team and they came back maybe like six months later and they said, we've got this thing called Bulletproofs. So bulletproof is something that's been in the news lately. Um, this is how we heard about it, like a month before it was published. Um, they're like, we've got this thing called bulletproof. There's like all this crazy new stuff. There's this guy, John Boodle at UCL, and he has this like super efficient way to do inner products. And we have an even more efficient way where we modify the technique to shrink it further. And then we can somehow special case this just for range proofs on a mount hidden by Peter McCormick mm -hmm. and get like way more efficiency there um and oh and ps is also will give you general zero knowledge proofs like snark or starks or whatever and they're much much smaller instead of being like two and a half kilobytes or actually if we were to do like a full 64-bit monero style proof this would be uh five kilobytes instead of being five kilobytes it's going to be 700 bytes oh and you can aggregate them so if you've got two five kilobyte things you put them together and then they're both 700 bytes together that's every time you double the amount of, of proofs that you're aggregating, you add 64 bytes. Like it grows incredibly slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was very exciting. Certainly this, this solved our disk space issues. Like we were concerned about the blockchain growing too quickly um, for, for our product liquid at Blockstream. It solved that. But we looked at this and we're like, you know, there's a lot of crypto here. It's not just like a lot of equations that we've got to read. These are a lot of equations that the computer has got to deal with. We've got to add, um, it looked like 180 or something elliptic curve points to verify these things. And, um, and we are worried that they wind up being slower than the original proof. Um, and then we'd have this awful decision to make where we decide, do we want these super cool small things or do we want, um, or do we want the things that are a little bit faster? Right. And it's not fun when you have to make a speed size trade-off because there's never a good answer for any specific application. So we got to work implementing this because um, we needed benchmarks for the paper. Um, like we're all authors on this paper and, and 
like we should maybe contribute something we felt you know the ethical thing to do so we went to implement this to see actually how fast it was and in the course of doing this we found a whole bunch of optimizations uh we found that actually we could verify these things like three and a half times as fast as the old proofs and the reason for this is that unlike the old range proofs where you have a bunch of elliptic curve points, you've got to multiply them by scalars, you've got to add them together, you've got to do a bunch of this stuff. Um, you don't have to do so much of that in the old range proofs, but you have to do them in order. You have to multiply a curve point by some random value. You've got to hash that to get a new random value and multiply your next point. Hash that, multiply your next point. Hash that, multiply your next point. Which means you can't do this in parallel. Um, and you can't... Um, use, there are algorithms out there called multi-exponentiation algorithms that let you um, do this kind of multiply a curve point by something and add it to a curve point times something else, add it to a curve point times something else, and, and so on. Um, you can't do that because you don't know what you're going to be multiplying up front. You've got to do one, hash it to get the next challenge. Do one, hash it, do one, hash it. Bulletproofs didn't have this problem. With bulletproofs, you basically hash a whole bunch of different parts of the proof. You get a whole pile of hashes, and then you do this giant multi-exponentiation. And we spent quite a while uh, researching efficient multi-exponentiation algorithms. And what we came up with turned out to be three and a half times faster. And uh, so this was great. There's no longer any trade-off. They're like, great, it's, uh, it's you know about a third the size. It's over three times faster. It actually kind of worked out the same efficiency like per byte because we shrunk it by as much as we made it faster. Um, but then something really cool happened. Um, at the Stanford Blockchain Conference, which back then was called BPACE, so the Blockchain Protocol and Security something, um, acronym no one could remember, it's now SBC, Stanford Blockchain Conference. Um, Benedict was going to present on this because he was kind of the, the main driving force behind this paper. And the, uh, the morning he was presenting, or maybe it was the day before, uh, he and I were talking about this and we realized that if we wanted to verify multiple bulletproofs at once, like on a blockchain, when you get a transaction, it's got a whole pile. Did I lose him? All right, I'm gonna try to get him back. Let's wait for a second. Are you able to hear me? Yeah, you're back? Okay. Um, sort of. Are you able to hear me all right? Yeah, I hear you. Cool. All right, so I'm, I switched from my phone to my laptop. My phone seg faulted, which okay. is kind of concerning. Um, I think it overheated. It's pretty hot. 
Okay. Uh, so I switched to my laptop, which I've never used before. I didn't know if it had a mic. I had to untape my uh, my camera here. You can see the tape creeping back. I didn't want. Yeah, I didn't want to kill the. Wait, hold on. I'm getting. Go here. All right. Yeah, you're good. Okay. Cool. So th this will not crash. I'm pretty sure. Um, Sorry about that for those that have, were uh, listening midstream. Um, so the morning, the morning that Benedict was giving a talk, um, we found this very efficient way to batch verify bulletproof. Um, we realized that this giant multi-exponentiation that we were doing, which is already pretty efficient because it was a multi-exponentiation, we realized that in every single bulletproof, um, at least for the bulletproof range proofs that we cared about at the time, we were always using the same set of curve points. And so if we wanted to verify a whole bunch of these um, together, what we could do is we could take whatever we would have been multiplying uh, each curve point for. So like for a given curve point, you can say, what would I be multiplying this by in the first proof? What would I be multiplying it by in the second proof? What would I be multiplying it by in the third and so forth? And you think of some uniformly random number and you multiply each one by a different random number and then you add them up and then uh, you just multiply your curve point by one thing. And it's like this randomized sum of everything that you would have multiplied it by. And the goal in verifying this when you do this giant computation is that the end result will be zero. And the nice thing about zero is that zero times a uniformly random number plus a bunch of other zeros times other uniformly random numbers is still zero. So you preserve this, this correctness property that the result will be zero. And this randomness um, is kind of a standard result in crypto that if you generate uniformly random numbers like this, and for each proof you choose a different randomizer, then there's no way that somebody can somehow game it to get a zero by like somehow conspiring to create different proofs that were themselves invalid. But when you collapse them in this way, when you just add things together, uh, you'll get a zero, even though you didn't originally have zeros. So the result was that we could batch verify these things extremely fast. Um, and we wound up like in the extreme case, suppose that you were had like aggregates of 16 bulletproofs, 16 64-bit range proofs, and you had like 5,000 of those, and you wanted to verify all those in one shot. It would be about 120 times as fast as the old range proofs. And so this, this gave us some pretty cool numbers that we could put in our blog and we could put in the talk and stuff. Um, and actually, Benedict's numbers, like, I miss, I miss computing. Benedict's going up to talk, and he's like, Andrew, I need these numbers. And I'm like scribbling on a napkin, and I said, ah, oh, say this. Um, and I managed, fortunately, all of my mistakes canceled out, and, and the final numbers were almost correct. <laughs> it's potentially quite embarrassing. Um, but the other thing this did, so I mentioned uh, when I first started talking about bulletproofs that there's this general zero-knowledge zero proof scheme associated with this. And when we first heard of this, we thought like, ha-ha, that's nice, but it was so unbelievably slow that it didn't matter. Like it was not ever going to compete with snarks. It was not, um, it was not even going to be useful for anything, really. But when we found this batch verification optimization, suddenly for a bunch of specific applications, this became practical. And this became something that we started thinking about using in real life. So it's still not, um, it's not like something that Zcash could use um, or that Monero could use to get, um, to like replace their zero knowledge proofs. 
Actually, I take that second one back. There is potential uh, for using this kind of thing in Monero to get larger ring signatures, but that's a bit of an open research problem to figure out how exactly to do that. Uh, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility. And I think, um, I think we'll be able to get something out of that. And what's cool about that is like, like to get much larger rings, say, like maybe you could produce a ring signature. Ring signatures inside of Bulletproofs are actually weirdly difficult um, because your prover, it's ambiguous how much knowledge your prover has, right? Supposedly they know like one secret key out of many. Mm -hmm. What if they know multiple ones? What if they know all of them? Uh, that violates this <clears throat> security model under which we proved bulletproof secure. So then our security proof breaks, and then we have to like really rethink under what conditions this is actually going to work and so forth. There's some difficult work there, but it's the kind of thing that, uh, that looks like there'll be something there, which is really cool because we didn't, like before we found this optimization, we really didn't have anything in this direction. We had no zero knowledge proofs that worked that worked for general programs that were not like special purpose prove this thing equals zero kind of things um, that had no trusted setup. So snarks famously have this trusted setup is really what makes them uh, unsuitable uh, for a lot of applications. And uh, and they were compact. Um, so like Starks are, are a cool new thing that's super fast and no trusted setup and they're quantum secure, bulletproof or not. Like, super cool except they're very big they're like over 100 kilobytes so they had this small reasonably efficient general zero knowledge proof scheme with no trusted setup and now that we have that like a lot of stuff has changed in uh, just over the course of the last year a lot of stuff has changed about the way that we think about where we can use zero knowledge proofs um and uh, that, that's been very exciting um so when you, so say, when you where, say where what, what other? Yeah, so let me, um, so there's kind of almost a joke on IRC, on Bitcoin Wizards where I hang out, where we would say like, oh, if we had snarks, we could do this. Like whenever somebody um, would propose something difficult, we say, oh, if we had snarks, we could do this, ha ha. Um, and of course we do have snarks. They just have a trusted setup and they, they depend on some security assumptions that we're not all comfortable with. Um, so one example of this that yeah, so let me let me switch over to Schnorr signature. I'm going to like kind of make a big shift, but I'll still talk about bulletproofs for for one minute. That'll be my segue. Um, if you are doing a Schnorr multi-signature, um, which is so first, let me explain what a what a signature is and what a multi-signature is. Um, I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with this, but basically, a digital signature is something where somebody who has some secret key and a public key called a verification key can produce a signature on some special, some specific message. And anybody can take the message, usually like a Monero transaction or a Bitcoin transaction or something. They take the message, they take the signature, and they take the verification key, and they can verify that that all lines up. Um, meanwhile, the signer is able to produce a signature using their secret key. And the security property of this is that only somebody who knows the secret key is actually able to produce a signature. So only one person can sign, many people can verify is the idea. So a multi-signature um, is one for which multiple people can sign, like together they sign. It's not, so it's almost the opposite of a ring signature. In a ring signature, you have many people and one of them signs, you can't tell who. In a multi-signature, many people sign, they all sign, like you need every one of them to cooperate. 
And the way that you do this in Bitcoin, for example, is you require every single signer to just give a, uh, to give a signature separately. So actually like a, a set of signatures is a self a multi-signature with different signers on the same message. Um, the way that Monero does it is similar, I think. Um, I actually haven't looked into this for a while, but in, in the appendix to the original Bitcoin paper, there's discussion of doing stuff like this. Um, or maybe it does something more clever. Maybe it uses Schnorr signatures. I don't remember now. But um, the signature scheme that Bitcoin uses and that Ethereum uses and that most projects use because they're clones of, of Bitcoin uh, is something called ECDSA. It's the digital signature algorithm. And ECDSA makes it very difficult to produce multi-signatures in any way other than just having everybody produce their own signatures. But there's another signature algorithm called Schnorr which allows a much more efficient way of doing multi-signatures. You don't need to just provide, everybody provides a separate signature and you don't need to use like really exotic crypto and like general multi-party computations and all sorts of stuff. What you can do is if you and I want to produce a multi-signature, that's like a two of two, both, both of us have to contribute. We could literally add our public keys together to get a combined public key. We decide on a message to sign and then we each individually produce a signature and we add the signatures together. And the resulting sum of signatures will be a valid signature that could only be produced by the two of us working together. And I'm oversimplifying in, in two ways. So one, one is very important. You, you can't actually just add keys together and have a secure scheme. The reason being that I could think of my own key, subtract your key off of that, and then add the, pretend that was my key. And then we add them together now your key and the subtracted key will, will cancel out, and now it's actually just secretly my coins. Um, so we have a combined public key, which is actually only mine. So you have to be be much more um, you have to be much more careful about how you do this. And, and there are ways. Um, as a lot of my research over the last year has been finding good ways to do that that are efficient. If before we go, wait, hold on. I'm, I'm getting a weird, getting echo, weird echo, here. echo here. We have to close. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can switch back to my phone if you'd like. Uh, no, it's okay, because I don't want to lose you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, now I don't hear the echo. So just before we proceed further into the technicals, um, what's your overall thought on kind of this this meme that's out there that, uh, you know, Bitcoin isn't fungible or private at the protocol level? Um because this technology is not not necessarily ready to be implemented. So, I mean, we have these things like confidential transactions, and now uh, bulletproofs have been added to them, making them more efficient and more scalable. Is that the reason why we're, we're not seeing these things being implemented, because they're not ready and they're not scalable enough? Or are there other reasons as to why uh, we're not starting to see these uh, improvements being made to Bitcoin? Yep. Um, that's a really good question. Um, so with um, something like Monero's ring signatures or Zcash's uh, like Sapling Snark circuit um, or even confidential transactions, uh, in that case, um, you're right. The, the big problems here are, are scalability for one. But there's a secondary problem, um, and this is actually quite an interesting one, which is that if we were to get this kind of privacy in Bitcoin, 
it would have the side effect of making the soundness of Bitcoin itself dependent on cryptographic assumptions. So if we had confidential transactions as they exist today, then anyone who is able to break the discrete logarithm problem, which is that the cryptographic assumption that our signatures all rely on, would then be able to inflate the system in a way that was undetectable. And there's, if everybody could break the discrete log problem, then you could structure things so that it would be detectable, but then everybody loses their privacy um, at like an efficiency loss, which maybe some people would be more comfortable with. But right now in Bitcoin, you can look at the blockchain, you can see all the transactions. Um, the transactions themselves are made immutable by this proof of work that, that no amount of physics is going to make undone. Well, as mining gets more and more efficient, eventually we'll, we'll plateau at some level at which it's, it's really immutable. Um, you can check that all the amounts add up. You can check that nobody is minting coins. Um, you can really verify the soundness of the system. And confidential transactions does not let you do that. Um, worse than that, it, it requires you trust a cryptographic assumption that we know will be broken by quantum computers. So maybe if there was something like confidential transactions or something like SNARKs or um, some sort of ring signature that was resistant to quantum computers, maybe that would be okay. Um, and by like, maybe like I'm really talking about community sentiment here and I'm talking about what direction the Bitcoin project wants to go in. These are not, these are almost not technical things. Um, mm -hmm. It's how, how comfortable are people trusting um, computationally hard problems to remain computationally hard? How much are people willing to trust the system to that fact? Um, so what do you think about, uh, I mean, so Monero is obviously went ahead and did these, you know, we went ahead and implemented these things. Um, so do you think a project like Monero essentially requires more trust in, in the math and the research behind it than something like Bitcoin? Because it's, it's, it's not verifiable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and so for example, I'd be very hesitant to hold any Monero long-term, like past like whatever I think my quantum computer horizon is. Um, and I don't, I don't have enough time to, to go more into that. I hate to like lob my quantum computer horizon and then not elaborate, but I'm going to do that. Um, and I'm not going to elaborate on what I think there. Okay. Um, yeah, so that, that's, that's one side of it. Um, but there's another part to the Bitcoin fungibility story. And let me first say that, that when people say Bitcoin is not fungible and it's not private and so forth, they're absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of cool things we can do to make this better um, that are ready to be implemented. Um, that's largely uh, the things blocking it are uh, hammering out design decisions. Like when, when you change Bitcoin, you can't really unchange it, right? Like there's really a, a lot of friction here. Hammering out design decisions, actually writing the, the code, um, community discussions, that, that kind of thing. Um, and I can say a bit more about that. So let me, let me finish my signature story from earlier and it will transition quite nicely, nicely okay. into that. Um, so with Schnorr signatures, you can produce multi-signatures by each person creates their own signature and you add them together. There's an important way I, I oversimplified that beyond like all the key security stuff. It's actually like I simplified the... Uh, the protocol is actually a two-phase thing. So when you're producing a signature, ordinarily, you produce like kind of an ephemeral verification key called a nonce. Um, and then 
your signature is a sort of weird um, equation where you mix in your real secret key and your ephemeral secret key or your secret nonce, I should say. You mix in your secret key and your nonce in some sort of weird equation involving the message that you're trying to sign. And the result is verifiable um, using your public nonce, which becomes part of the signature, and your public key, which presumably people know. And the reason that you need these two things, um, ultimately, in both ECDSA and Schnorr, comes down to linear algebra. You always need more unknowns than equations. Otherwise, someone could solve. They could just take your signature. They could solve for your secret key. They could solve for your secret nonce. So if you and I are making a multi-signature, what we actually do is we both produce nonces, public nonces. We add those together to get a combined public nonce. Then we mix in the message. And then we each produce a signature and we add those together. So there's two stages. There's two stages of adding. First, you add the nonces, then you add, um, then you add the signatures. And there is uh, another security issue here that's much more difficult to solve than the issue with canceling out keys. And what that is, is that if you are multi-signing, with some sort of hardware wallet or something that doesn't have any memory or persistent state um, or, or where those things are very slow, then you can actually extract secret keys using this linear algebra trick that I mentioned. And here's how that would work. Um, so suppose I'm, I'm an attacker and I'm trying to do some sort of signature with you. We agree on a transaction to sign. And so we start doing this. You give me your nonce, I give you my nonce, we add these together. Um, you give me my signature. You give me your signature, um, but then instead of me giving you my signature, I'm just going to like abort. I'm going to like walk away. Say sorry, my my phone seg faulted. Uh, let's restart this uh, this signature. And so we go back, and then we do the same thing. And typically, what you would do as a signer is you would produce your nonce deterministically. So we're going to sign the same message, it's the same keys and stuff. So you will give me the same nonce as before. If you're, if you're sort of naively using best practices for ordinary signatures, you would do that. I don't. I change my nonce. And so now the combined nonce is different, even though your nonce is the same. So we get to the second stage. You provide your signature. I'm to provide my signature. Well, I'm not even going to bother doing that. I take your signature now. Um, because the combined nonce has changed, your signature represents a new equation. But because your secret nonce did not change, I now have two equations and two unknowns. You maybe remember from linear algebra, I can put that in a matrix, I can invert it, and now I know your secret key. So how do we prevent that? Well, it's not easy. There's no good way. What we have to do is make sure that you always use a uniformly random nonce. And unlike with single signatures, you can't just hash the message and hash your secret key and like somehow take all of your state and hash it together. The reason being that part of your state is going to come from me, right? I'm providing a nonce, and you don't know that. Because when we start the protocol, we don't know each other's state. Somebody has to go first, and they're going to be working with incomplete information. So maybe you have to generate a uniformly random nonce, just like uniformly randomly. Well, that's hard. Now you need a hardware random number generator. You have to trust that that's not biased. Um, you have to... Um, trust that it works to begin with. You have to trust that it's not backdoor. There's no way to verify the output of a hardware random number generator. Um, okay, that's one idea. Um, or you could have like a counter, and you could do the usual deterministic nonce, like hash all of your state and also hash the counter. Then you increment the counter. And so every time, you'll always get a new secret value because you're hashing this counter that never is the same. Well, now you need persistent state. 
you need a counter, you need to make sure it always increments, you need to make sure that you never let it go backwards and you never use the same value twice. You're going to need extra hardware for that. Um, your The code to do this is going to be more complicated. If you forget to do this, then you're screwed. Um, it's, not, it's not a very nice solution. Um, then, that's kind of it. Like those, those are the two ways that you could naively prevent this kind of attack. So there's another way. If we have snarks, there's another way we can do this. And now we have bulletproof, so we can do this. And that is, the real problem here is that you want to always use the same state. You always want to use the same nonce, but you can't, um, sorry. You want to make sure that for any given signature nonce pair that you always, um, well, you want to always use the same nonce because that's easier for you. All you care about is that if this ever changes, your nonce has to change. So if the message changes, your nonce needs to change. If the public keys change, your nonce needs to change. If my nonce changes, your nonce needs to change. That's, that's kind of the hard part. Um, so what we could do instead is we could force my nonce to be unchangeable. What we could do is you produce your nonce deterministically. You hash your secret key in your message which will produce a uniformly random secret that will always change as long as the message changes, all good. You provide me a zero knowledge proof that you did that. And I do the same thing. I produce my nonce, I hash my secret key in the message to get some new secret. I provide a zero knowledge proof that this changed. And now you know that even if I restarted and you have no memory and you have no hardware to be able to detect this, that I am doing exactly the same thing I, was, I did in the first iteration. And now when you produce your signature, I will still get my two equations and two unknowns, except they're the same equation. And that doesn't help anything, right? It's a, it's a degenerate matrix. I can't invert it. Um, but the problem is it requires a general zero-knowledge proof. It's very hard to provide a uh, zero-knowledge proof that a nonce is generated correctly because you have to run it through a hash function. That's a very complicated thing. There's like 25,000 multiplications that go into that if you insist on implementing it entirely in terms of multiplications, which you do for technical reasons in this case. Um, it seemed like a hard problem, but we can do it with bulletproofs. Um, so, so, so just to, to kind of circle back, so where do you see uh, Bitcoin potentially kind of starting to implement uh, fungibility and privacy at a protocol level? So. Let me, um, I'm going to spend like 10 minutes uh, talking about another extension of signatures called scriptless scripts. And then I'm going to come back to, to what this is going to look like in Bitcoin. Um, actually, I'll talk about scriptless scripts and then I'll talk about Taproot. And then I'm going to, to bring this back and say like, here's where I see Bitcoin going and here's the benefits of these things. I feel things. bad we, we didn't talk about, we're not going to talk about Mimblewimble at all. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. We've only got an hour. <laughs> yeah. I can come back. We'll, uh, we'll have to rename the video. Um, so, what, um, what scriptless scripts, so to go back way at the start of this conversation, you asked about partially blind um, atomic swaps. And that, I won't be able to say this in too much detail, but I can give kind of a hint as to how this works. So first, let me talk about scriptless scripts. So there's this nice linearity property with Schnorr signatures, which is why when we do a multi-signature, I said we can just add the uh, signatures together. That's not quite true. We actually have to like randomize them. <clears throat> similar to how you randomize um, bulletproof verification. You have to do some sort of randomization, whatever. That's a, that's a technical detail. It doesn't affect the fact that, that um, morally what you're doing is not complicated at all. You're just adding two things together. It's easy to add secrets 
And then because of the properties of elliptic curves, when you add secrets, the uh, corresponding verifier action is to add the corresponding public things, which is why um, when you add these signatures, the resulting public key is a sum of public keys. The resulting public nonce is a sum of public nonces. Like everything just sums into sums. It's great. You can exploit this fact with Schnorr signatures to encode a secret. It's kind of encrypt a secret in a Schnorr signature in a way that um, only someone with this extra auxiliary data is able to decrypt. And this is something called an adaptive signature. So let's go back to our two of two um, signature idea. So we're both signing a transaction. But now let's imagine that I am trying to sell you a secret. So this transaction is you giving some, some coins to me. Um, and in exchange, you want some secret 32 byte value. Okay, and this is maybe like the encryption key to where I buried my treasure or something like that. Who knows? Um, it's just some 32 byte random value. And you don't want me to get my money unless I give that to you, right? Um, that's sort of the, um, the, the hope here is that we can somehow make this atomic. We can do an atomic information exchange. So we do the short signature protocol. We uh, both think up some public nonces. We add those together. Now, before you give me your signature, I'm going to produce my signature. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to add the secret that I'm selling to my signature. I'm going to give that to you. And now there's a public there's a public key corresponding to my secret. Um, and I'm trying not to, to go too far into the weeds because I'm running out of clock time here. Um, there's a public key corresponding to my secret, and you can use that in conjunction with the message, in conjunction with my public key, and my public nonce, and blah, 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 and you can verify that I've done this. You receive this object that I'm claiming is actually a valid signature plus a secret, and you can verify that that's what it is. And you can't do anything with this, is the thing. Like, it's not a useful object. The blockchain won't accept it. Um, it's not a signature. It's like the signature offset by some random value. But at this point, you can be assured that I cannot get my coins without telling you the value. And the reason why is that as soon as I try to complete the transaction, when I put my real signature on the blockchain, you'll take that signature, subtract it from the thing that I gave you earlier, and what you'll be left with is a secret. So I give you this thing, it's called an adapter signature. At this point, you give me your signature, because you, you want to give me the coins. I take that signature, I add my signature, publish it to the blockchain, I've got my money, I'm happy. You look at the blockchain, and you say, hmm, here's a signature here. I can subtract off my contribution, and I can subtract off this adaptive signature thing. And what I'm left with is a secret that Andrew was trying to give me. Okay? So by itself, this is maybe not so, um, it's not obvious why this is interesting. Um, but it is. It is in general, actually, because like using uh, extra zero-knowledge proofs and stuff, I could like prove that this was the encryption key to a Sudoku solution or prove that it was a signing key for like a whole cache of Bitcoins or, or prove that it was like the proof of the collapse conductor or something like that. You know, I, I could really make those 32 bytes be valuable. But there's a more direct thing we can do here. And that is if we're doing an atomic swap. Suppose I'm trying to send you some Bitcoin on Bitcoin and you're trying to send me Monero on Monero and we want those two transactions to be atomic. They either both go through or they don't. We do this whole same kind of stunt, except I am going to give you adapter signatures. So let's imagine Bitcoin has Schnorr signatures. Okay, Monero actually already does. Um, I'm going to give you these adapter signatures 
in lieu of my signature. So we put up some coins. I put up my Bitcoin. You put up your Monero. Um, they're both in two of two things. We both need to sign on both sides to get the money. I give you adaptive signatures as the same secret, which is easy for you to verify. And now when I sign to take my coins, you learn my secret. You take the secret and subtract it from the adaptive signature on the other side, and then you learn my signature. So these adaptive signatures let you like transform a Monero signature that I'm using to take my coins into a Bitcoin signature that you can use to take your coins. So as soon as I take my money, you can take your money. Mm -hmm. But that's how the atomicity works. And the way that partially blind atomic swaps work is actually we can do this in a way where you're doing, imagine you're like um, a mixing service. You can do what's called a blind signature where you don't know what you're signing, but through some complicated protocol, um, it's not even that complicated, actually. It's, it's, it's pretty cool, but I don't have time to, to do it. Basically, we do this whole thing. You do the adapter signature now. So now you're giving me the secret. And you prove that the secret you're giving me is a blind signature sending me coins. But you don't even know what the signature is on. You don't know which coin you're sending me. Like, I choose a coin. I say, blindly sign this thing. Instead of blindly signing it, you do the blind signature, but then you kind of encrypt this to me. So now... You sign to take your coins. I'm able to extract a secret from the blockchain using this thing that we did interactively. I can That secret, it turns out, is itself an entire signature, which is blinded in a way that you can't tell what's being signed. I can unblind it. You can't tell that it was correlated with our interaction. I publish that to the blockchain. I take my coins. You don't even know which, which interaction went with which thing. Um, it's, really, it's a really cool trick. I'd really like to implement this when, as soon as I can find some time. Um, and the exciting aspect of all of this, so these are things that you can do right now in Bitcoin script using like hash pre-images and using like various tricks. And, and there's a paper called Tumblebit from a couple of years ago that uses some cool RSA encryption in conjunction with Bitcoin hash pre-images. Um, you can do atomic swaps, you can do lightning with these things. Um, and what sucks about all of these is that they are very non-private. You have to publish hashes to the blockchain. You have to publish hash pre-images to the blockchain. If multiple transactions are linked, they'll have the same hash and the same hash pre-images. So it's not very private and it's very inefficient. It requires your blockchain support specific hashes. Um, it's a little bit hard to do securely um, because you have to make sure that your different blockchains have the same rules about what can be hashed. For example, in Bitcoin, you can only hash 520 bytes, otherwise it will reject it. In Ethereum, there's no such limit. So if you're trying to do a Bitcoin Ethereum swap uh, using hash pre-images and I chose like a giant pre-image and we didn't uh, set up the protocol to prevent that. There's a potential that like someone could take the Ethereum without making the Bitcoin available or something like that. Um, so these adapter signature base swaps are much more simple. They're much smaller. There's much less to verify. And in fact, the result that appears on the blockchain is just a single signature. It's actually impossible for anyone to tell or a verifier to tell without extra information that there were multiple parties involved even. No one can see a correlation between the two transactions uh, other than timing and, and all that usual stuff. Um, they're completely uncorrelated single signatures. So now you have a transaction on the blockchain which literally looks and verifies identically to a normal single payer like I'm just sending some coins to my exchange kind of transaction. But imbued in that is also the weird complicated semantics. It could be a multi-signature. It could be an atomic swap. It could be part of a lightning thing. It could be part of like a tumble bit like mix. Um, it could be a zero knowledge contingent payment where like I literally am like selling the location of the hidden treasure or something like that. And all of these things look identical 
to ordinary single signer transactions. So do you see those, where do you see them being adopted first? So Bitcoin, it's kind of a race, isn't it? Um, so Monero has the advantage that Monero already has um, Schnorr signatures. And actually there are a couple other um, blockchains that do. Anything that uses ED255519 rather than SecP256K1, which are two, two elliptic curves. Um, the standard ED255519 signatures are basically Schnorr signatures. And actually I'm aware of some, I don't want to advertise them, so I'm not going to name them, but there was some like crappy um, uh, clone coin of some, some other altcoin out there. And both of them used ED255519. Uh, the one of them was was Coin, which is a file storage uh, type coin. But then they had some weird community schism. I don't know the details. Somehow they had a fork, like a Bcash Bitcoin kind of fork. And the forkers actually implemented this kind of swap between Coin and the fork. And they have proof of concept code out there. I have not reviewed it. Um, I refuse to review it for like liability reasons. I do not advise anybody to do this, um, to use this software because it's like random. Like if, if you saw the drama around this, you would not trust any of these people to be writing crypto. Um, but apparently it exists and apparently it's a thing you can do. And what's cool is that no one can tell that it's happening, right? Because the signatures are, are uncorrelated. Um, but in terms of production ready deployments, um, I'm aware that the Monero folks are working on this, like Serang and, and Saray are looking at this. Um, I don't know if they have a timeline or, or what their priorities are. Um, what I'm most excited about personally is deployment on Bitcoin. And that's blocked on Schnorr signatures existing in Bitcoin. So let me in my last uh, five minutes say what I think that's going to look like. And that'll be like an answer to, to what I feel is like the production ready deployment um, of this kind of stuff. Um, so let me first briefly talk about something called Taproot. Uh, which is quick, it's, it's related to Schnorr signatures. So the there's kind of a, um, a key observation in multi-party blockchain transactions or, or Bitcoin outputs, Monero outputs, whatever outputs you want, which is that typically you either have one person or maybe you have many people controlling some coins. And if they want the money to move, then they can all agree to move the money and they can just all sign a transaction to move the money there. And when you have complicated script conditions, like in a Lightning HTLC or like a uh, BitGo or a green address um, uh, backup emergency policy or something, the script is actually only important if something goes wrong. Like you have this base case where everybody agrees that the script, and even if there's some complicated script, it's like verifying like a discrete log contract that like the outcome of some, some bet turned out a certain way or whatever. As long as everyone agrees, there's no reason the blockchain needs to care about that, right? Like everyone can just say, you know what? We agree this thing worked. Let's just sign this transaction um, and not make all these validators actually look at all of these complicated conditions that we encoded in this Bitcoin script or this Ethereum smart contract or, or whatever. Um, so what Taproot does is it really exploits this fact of, of blockchain usage, uh, which is that you have a standard case where everybody agrees. And it says, so it uses this neat crypto trick where you can hide a commitment inside a public key. It turns out it's possible to do this. It won't increase the size of the public key. It's not going to be visible in any way. And so what you do in Taproot is you, your, your script public key 
in Bitcoin, usually your, your, your addresses represent something called a script public key. It's actually a Bitcoin script that hashes some stuff and checks a public key and checks a signature and, and blah, blah, blah. We replace that with an ordinary elliptic curve public key. And maybe this is a sum of multiple people's keys. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Maybe it's like some sort of weird threshold, like three of five key. Uh, they'll all look the same. And if there are script conditions, um, like say if these coins sit for too long, then they fall back to some emergency policy. Or maybe there's like a hash premise that needs to be re revealed or, or whatever, or blah, blah, blah. Instead of encoding that in your script using like op if, op else kind of thing, you commit to it inside your public key. And if you need that stuff, then you reveal the commitment at the time that you use it. But typically, everyone agrees to just sign, so you never reveal the commitment. Everybody just signs as a public key. And in conjunction with all this cool adapter signature stuff that, that I call scriptless scripts, what this means is that you can have um, really complicated, like basically any smart contract that I'm aware of in use in Bitcoin today, you can encode that in a public key. Um, and you can encode the contract semantics mostly in the signature with a few exceptions, but you can always push those exceptions out into a script that's committed and that isn't revealed in, in the cooperative case. And, um, and the resulting transactions um, appear to be outputs with an EC key. Actually, this is exactly how Monero does things because Monero can't support general scripts because of the ambiguity about what output's being spent. And this is how Mimblewimble does things because they have the same problem. Um, and maybe you could do this in Zcash, I don't know. Um, the most efficient, the cheapest thing for anyone to do is to produce a single public key and a single signature. As long as everyone's cooperating, this will be the case. And so what I am going to propose, along with Peter Wulla and Greg Maxwell and AJ Towns and um, Johnson Lau and a few, like, like many, many contributors, um, we're going to propose a new type of Bitcoin output that is this taproot thing, where all the outputs just look like public keys. And the, uh, the combination of taproot, which lets you hide all your emergency conditions, and scriptless scripts, which let you embed a whole ton of complex semantics and signatures themselves, mean that suddenly, basically every single use of Bitcoin today will look identical to one person paying one person. So you get this tremendous boost in, uh, in fungibility and privacy from that. It's kind of like confidential scripts or something, where now you have all these Bitcoin transactions that, uh, that no one can tell what the scripts are. And this does not require any changes to the security model. This is not uh, putting any part of Bitcoin soundness under, um, like under new cryptographic assumptions. It's not requiring any new weird accumulators. It's not requiring a trusted setup. It's not requiring any um, novel cryptographic assumptions. And critically, it's more efficient for verifiers, both in space and verification time, than any of the old stuff. Um, so there's stuff like that, where there's, there's a tremendous amount of work to do here, but there's also a tremendous benefit. And there are basically no downsides, aside from the implementation complexity and the review cycles and, and the difficulty getting consensus and, and the community kind of stuff. And so right now, that's really what I care about, because this is achievable and it has no downsides. And it's uh, like we know how to do it, right? It's like almost like a purely an engineering thing. And that's really what I'm focusing on right now. And my hope is that by the time this is all deployed and by the time we run out of low-hanging fruit and cool stuff 
um, like this, then maybe the story for confidential transactions or general zero knowledge proofs or something uh, with better crypto assumptions, maybe that will have improved in the academic space. Um, it's not something that I'm qualified to to help out with or that I um, have time to help out with or anything, but there's a lot of people working on this now. And, uh, and while we're waiting for that stuff to mature, there's some really cool stuff we can be doing now. So do you do you just think in terms of, of Bitcoin or are you interested in other projects as well, like Monero and uh, Zcash? So ultimately, I only care about Bitcoin, um, but I definitely pay a lot of attention to these other projects. Um, I really appreciate that Monero exists. Um, Monero is providing a really important, uh, a couple of really important contributions to the ecosystem. Um, one is crypto research and like implementing confidential transactions and implementing a lot of stuff that uh, that in the Bitcoin space were too conservative and and uh, and cagey to implement. Um, and that's great. That's really important. And another thing is to get privacy technology in the hands of ordinary people, um, and to get and to to figure out the usability problems around this, and to figure out how to navigate like the political and regulatory landscape, um, and also to shape the political and regulatory landscape, um, because there's a fear I have if something like Monero or Zcash didn't exist, that regulators would look at the current state of Bitcoin which is just abysmal from a privacy perspective and start trying to exploit this and start trying to lock it down and start trying to insist that it not change in certain ways. And I don't think regulators actually have the power to prevent these things from happening, but it's certainly not a fight that anyone wants to have that would be good for any parties. Um, it would be very damaging to Bitcoin and to the wider ecosystem if uh, the goals of fungibility and privacy were in conflict with regulatory requirements in, in large parts of the world. That would be very bad. And the fact that there exist privacy-focused projects out there right now is something that's very easy to point to and say, look, if you're worried about all of these bad consequences of privacy technology, that, that I mean, it's too late, right? Right. Um, and I so think does, that's... So doesn't that become a, a reason why, uh, you know, a lot of... I mean, it is obviously, it's it's a... It's a pure open source project like Bitcoin. Uh, it, it lives up to all the ideals that Bitcoin does in terms of, you know, um, being fairly launched and things like that. Uh, so isn't that, is, isn't that good reason for a lot of people working on Bitcoin to kind of also then be helping out the Monero project as well? Or do you think there's, a, there's reason to only focus on Bitcoin? Because, I mean, a lot of Bitcoin maximalists would tell you that um, projects like Monero are almost kind of a, a, an energy sink and they're wasting energy and talent that can be going towards Bitcoin. But from what you're saying, uh, you see the importance of kind of spearheading these important issues such as privacy and fungibility. So isn't that a, a good reason to kind of motivate and, and get some people behind the Monero project on a so deeper one. level? The people working on Bitcoin and the people working on Monero largely have different goals. Um, in Bitcoin, we care a lot about um, stability and soundness and like very long-term kind of stuff um, at the expense of cryptographic experimentation, at the expense of privacy often, um, or at least of privacy now. Um, and 
a lot of what the Bitcoin developers are focused on are things that improve those goals and, and that try to preserve the current state of the system with respect to like what assumptions are needed to verify its soundness. Um, how where, did, where does that po where do those policy? Uh, sorry to interrupt, but where did those policy ideas come from? Because I, I do agree that is where I feel like Bitcoin. Uh, that's the ethos of Bitcoin. But I mean, if you read like the, you know, the the crypto anarchist papers and the things that Bitcoin supposedly grew out of, uh, their priorities seem to be more aligned with things uh, like fungibility and privacy on the core protocol level. So at what point uh, did the Bitcoin ecosystem, people in the Bitcoin ecosystem decide that those things weren't necessarily as important and how did the what what policy are they are they following and what philosophies if yep. not the crypto anarchist um, philosophy so this it is so right, there are a whole bunch of stuff to, to unpack there um so one critical thing is that it's not that um i would still call this a crypto anarchist um philosophy but the critical difference between what bitcoin is doing and what a lot of other projects are doing is that the um the absolute most important thing is that we do not destroy the system right like it's really like extremely risk averse um so to to answer your first question about how does this happen it's i think purely a selection effect uh about risk averse people being willing to work and then wanting to work on bitcoin and people who aren't so risk averse thinking this is like horrible and no fun and then not working on bitcoin um, or people who want to do cool crypto experimentation will get no traction showing up on the Bitcoin mailing list saying, guys, why don't we deploy confidential transactions right now? They'll just get no traction, so they'll go off to some other project. Hmm. Um, and even like, sometimes these are the same people on different days. Like if, if I'm feeling conservative, I'm going to work on Bitcoin. And if I'm feeling crazy, I'm going to go work on something else. Um, but the absolute most important thing, so Bitcoin is really the elephant in the room. I mean, it's I think it's back to being like over 50% of the global cryptocurrency market cap. Not that that's a, a super useful metric, but it gives a, a picture of what people are thinking about when they think of cryptocurrencies. Um, if Bitcoin fails, we don't get another chance. It's really, I think in terms of public exception and global adoption, um, it would be very, very bad if Bitcoin were to fall on its face, especially after 10 years. It would just look like, you know what? We tried this like crazy moon math cryptography nonsense. And it just doesn't work in practice. That's what people would say. Um, and related to the system cannot fail, another extremely important priority is that the system always be accessible to as many people as possible. And that means that we care a lot about optimizing network propagation. We care a lot about minimizing bandwidth, about minimizing disk space and CPU resource usage and stuff like that. Um, much more than um, smaller projects that are more willing to make those kind of trade-offs in favor of privacy or uh, fungibility technology. And this is partially like an ethos thing, and it's actually just partially a scale thing. Just Bitcoin has tremendously more transactions than anything else out there. Um, and even small, like, single-digit percentage performance losses are not something that we would be willing to accept lightly. Um, and then combine that with an, an environment like this where there's so much cool new research coming out uh, all the time. And it's very easy to say, you know what, we aren't going to deploy this thing that will slow us down by 2%. And 
and it is often more like 40% or something. But like we wouldn't deploy a thing that will slow us down 2% because I bet you in six months, someone's going to invent something that doesn't have that problem kind of thing. Um, but we are like, I mean, Bitcoin can't succeed if it's not private or fungible. Um, so the view amongst most Bitcoin people I know is not that they don't care about privacy or fungibility. They care very, very much, but they view Bitcoin right now as something in its infancy that's very much like a cool technology experiment, but it's one that cannot fail. Or it's one that, that we better not cause to fail. Um, and that takes precedence over everything else. So all of our work and research into privacy and fungibility technology happens within that uh, ethos, within that framework, where it's like we can only make small movements at a time. We really do not want any negative consequences, especially to resource requirements um, and especially to um, soundness guarantees. Um, so what can we do with those restrictions? And it's kind of surprising to me every day that there's stuff we can do in that. Like I'm amazed that we can talk about like taproot and scriptless scripts and stuff, which actually are dramatic fungibility improvements within such a restrictive framework. Um, but it seems like we can, and that's very encouraging as a cryptographer and as a researcher. Um, but it's also encouraging to, to Bitcoin people who are very conservative. It's like this, this is the right strategy and that they're going to double down on that. Of course, if, uh, if this kind of conservatism is working and winning and producing really cool stuff, then, uh, then there will continue to be a, a large vibrant community doing that. Um, and then you get the kind of selection effects where, where depending how people want to behave, they're going to join that community or not. Um, but it's still, it's still very much a crypto anarchist view. Um, it's just a much um, more stable, like, like straight line kind of view, I think, um, and a much longer horizon and like a, a willingness to not be private now, right, is my thought. That's my thought on that. Okay. Well, I, I could, I could ask, you know, ask you questions all night. I know you have to go. You're going to a concert. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I mean, there's there's just a ton to talk about. If I, if I could ever have you on the show again, uh, maybe we could actually talk about Mimble Wimble next time. Um, and yeah, I would love to continue to pick your brain because I mean, obviously, you have a lot to say. And uh, anytime you you know you open your mouth, everybody is is certainly listening. So um, I appreciate you taking the time, coming on the show, uh, and being so you know candid with us. Um, and I just thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, right. happy, happy to come back. All right, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.